Yes? Excellent. All right. Uh, good evening, everyone. It's great to be with you all, some of you for the second time today, uh, to study God's Word. Let's pray for God to illumine our hearts and our minds, and then we will begin. Father, thank you uh, for this wonderful Sabbath day, this Lord's Day that you brought us together to hear and study your Word. Father, I'm thankful for uh, the fellowship of saints that we have a community to do this in. We're not left to our own devices to figure things out, and that's a blessing, and we're, we're thankful for that. Father, I pray tonight as we walk through your word that um, if anything true from your word should come through, that it would find good soil in the hearts that hear it and bear good fruit, uh, but also that if anything er erroneous is to come from my mouth, that it would be quickly forgotten, find no soil at all, and die. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So for a couple of thousand years, the Lord's Prayer has been at the heart of Christian worship and piety across all Christian traditions. It plays a central role both in the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic traditions, as well as in our own Protestant tradition. Much like the doctrine of the Trinity or the Nicene Creed, the Lord's Prayer is in many ways fundamental part of the faith that unites all Christians from all tongues, countries, denominations, traditions, and congregations. But even more specifically, in our own Reformed tradition, it is customary to exposit the different parts of the prayer. In the 16th century, Luther did it, Calvin did it, the Heidelberg Catechism and the Westminster Catechisms do it. So as we gather this summer to study this prayer in depth, we're engaging in something that many saints before us have done, and we can pull from their wisdom as we do so. The Fellowships of Saints is not alone. This is a collective project we've all been working on, and God has given it to us in his word. Thus far, we have studied the preface, Our Father which art in heaven, the first petition, Hallowed be thy name, and the second petition, Thy kingdom come. So far, we've learned many things, of course, but one thing you've likely noticed is that it's kind of amazing how much is packed into these short lines or petitions. What only is said in a few verses in Matthew chapter 6 actually has a lot more meaning behind it when you start to search the scriptures. So we're continuing that pilgrimage tonight through the Lord's Prayer with the third petition, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This petition is no different from the previous in that there's a lot packed into such a small line. This text naturally can be split into two major sections that we will deal with in order. First, thy will be done. This is the principal thing that we are praying for. It's the real matter of the prayer, and then second, on earth as it is in heaven. This modifies that principle. It tells us how this main thing ought to be performed. When looking at that first section, thy will be done, we are faced with a very important term we really need to define, the will of God. If we can't define what the will of God is, 
then we can't really know in any way what we are praying for. So, of course, like good Presbyterians, we want to interpret Scripture through Scripture, as the Westminster Confession tells us, and we begin to look for verses God has given us that clarify what the will of God is. When we do this, we discover that the Scriptures talk about God's will in a couple of distinct ways. First, we can understand the will of God as that which God has decreed to come to pass, what he has planned to take place. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 24 says, The Lord of hosts has sworn, As I have planned, so shall it be, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand. Here God is specifically talking about the destruction of Assyria, which he has planned to take place. But the principle it's showing us is that God has decreed and purposed what is to happen in history. This is God's sovereignty on full display. Secondly, we understand the will of God as God's moral commands or precepts. God's will is, of course, for us to obey him. Ephesians 6, chapter, sorry, chapter 6, verse 6, speaks of bondservants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. So in this sense, God's will is understood simply as something God wants us to do, something we have to perform, right? What God desires for our lives. So then we have the question, which of those is in view in the Lord's prayer? Whenever God's will, decree, or purpose comes up in the scriptures, generally the surrounding context makes it fairly clear which aspect or angle of God's will we are talking about. So for example, Romans chapter 15 verses 30 through 32 says, I appeal to you brothers by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. These verses come at the end of Paul's letter as he is expressing his desire to visit the church in Rome. He is clearly praying here that God in his sovereign will would purpose for Paul to escape the unbelievers in Judea so that he might come to Rome. Paul is not talking about what God has told him to do, some sort of precept that he needs to obey. He clearly doesn't know if he'll make it to Rome, but he is praying that it would be God's will or his decree for that to happen. The surrounding text makes it clear in what sense Paul is talking about God's will. In contrast, 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 15 and 16 says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Clearly here in this text, Peter is using the will of God to refer to what God desires his people to do. He wants them to do good. He wants to live as people who are free. He is telling them what to do. Peter is not saying that God has decreed his people to do this perfectly and this will perfectly come to pass in this situation. These are commands or precepts, laws, we might call them, 
that the body of Christ is to follow. And again, the context makes it clear. He talks about the will of God and then says, live this way, do good. It's clear. So we go back to our passage, and it's interesting because there isn't really anything in the immediate surrounding context, like the rest of the Lord's Prayer, that indicates the way in which we are supposed to take it here. So I believe we must conclude that both aspects of God's will are in view here. When we pray, thy will be done, we are praying that all that God has decreed would come to pass, and we are also praying that we would zealously obey God's law and God's commandments. We're talking about both. So that brings up another very interesting question. What does it mean to pray that God's decorative will be done? Why pray for something that is certain? We are a reformed church. That means that we believe all things are ordained by God and that he is absolutely sovereign in everything. Chapter 3 of the Westminster Confession of Faith says... God, from all eternity, did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. So, if in that sense God's will certainly is going to be done because God has decreed it to happen, why are we praying for it to be done? We are praying, really, that not only what God has decreed will come to pass, but that we will accept and love what comes to pass as decreed by God and not rage against it. Even in suffering, we are praying to in times of plenty, in times of want, times of joy, in times of hardship to pray like Job. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We are praying that we would trust in his plans and not lean on our own understanding or ordering of the world as if we knew better and could have decreed better than God has. We are praying that we would accept the acts of God in history and in our lives through the eyes of faith, realizing that he does all things for the good of those who love him. That's why we pray for things that are guaranteed. It's more about our hearts than it affecting any sort of action on God's part. And to be fair, this is one of the more difficult realities of the Christian life. In some way, all things come from God. So what we are praying for here in part is that we can accept that and accept it joyfully, that God has sovereign control over all things. We want to be able to face what happens in our lives, such as the end to a relationship, an unexpected career transi transition, or even the death of a loved one, and say to God, thy will be done, trusting his providence and his decree. Of course, we ought to say this in the good times as well, such as getting a promotion or getting married, all these good things God also gives us, thy will be done. Yeah, absolutely. Great. But that's not usually uh, where we struggle with accepting God's will, when it's what we wanted or something that is physically beneficial or good for us. We struggle when it's something hard or something we certainly would not have wanted for or asked for ourselves. So when we pray, thy will be done, we are praying that God would give us peace and accept what he has decreed. However, we as Christians, we have really good reasons for doing this. Romans eight twenty eight 
is very clear. Paul writes very clearly, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Paul says a lot of really complicated things, but that's not one of them, right? We can have this peace and acceptance of what God has decreed because we know as God's children that whatever he is doing, he is working toward our good, and we can find encouragement in that. Of course, when we pray this third petition, thy will be done, we are not just praying for God's decree to come to pass. We also pray that we would obey all that God has commanded us, that we would obey his precepts or his laws. This aspect of the will of God is called his preceptive will. This is the focus of the Westminster Shorter Catechism question 103. Question, what do we pray for in the third petition? Answer, in the third petition, we pray that God, by his grace, would make us able and willing to know, obey, and submit to his will in all things, as the angels do in heaven. Sometimes, even we as Christians can struggle with the question, what is God's will for my life? Every you know, high school senior is dealing with that question, and then it just happens again four years later if you go to college. <laughs> you don't usually find the answer then. They may want to submit and do the will of God, but they struggle to know what that is. I think this is really more difficult than it has to be because our culture likes to emphasize finding yourself and finding your purpose as if we have to go out into the world, take some time off from normal life to discover some deeply hidden secret will of God that's out there that we need to dig up or uncover somehow. And a couple notes on that. First, if God has hidden a part of his will, it is not our business to search it out. He has given us what he wants us to know. And secondly, if you choose to do so, good luck. I don't like your odds. Um, if he has hidden it, you're not going to find it. Unfortunately, this all goes to show that we have overcomplicated things. First Thessalonians 4, 3-5 implies that for this is the will of God, your sanctification, and then goes on to list what some of that means, sexual purity. God's will for us is that we be holy as he is holy. There's the answer to the question, what is God's will for my life? It's to be like Christ. But how do we do that? Well, first, you have to be a Christian with the Holy Spirit. If you have not been regenerated and illumined by the Holy Spirit, you cannot obey God, and you will not want to obey God. We are by nature rebels against God's word and his commands. Even wanting to obey is a gift of grace, let alone actual obedience. And second, you must look to the scriptures for the declaration of what it means to obey God, to see what he desires of us. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We don't have to go on some search for esoteric knowledge. We don't have to travel to Europe and find ourselves to know what God's will for us is. God has graciously given us Everything we need for life and godliness through knowledge of himself. 
And where do we find that knowledge that he has revealed of himself? In the scriptures. Our rule of life and faith. God literally gave us a book telling us what he desires from us. Our church, as you all are probably aware, subscribes to the Westminster Standards. The larger catechism has a great explanation of what God has given us by giving us the scriptures. Question 5 of the Westminster Larger Catechism asks, What do the scriptures principally teach? The answer, the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. And then the rest of the catechism is split into two sections titled, What Man Ought to Believe Concerning God? And then a very long, proper 17th century title, Having seen what the scriptures principally teach us to believe concerning God, it follows to consider what they require as the duty of man. But those are the sections, because that's what the Bible tells us, what to believe about God, and then what he requires of us. Paul says in 2 Timothy, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. According to Paul, one of the main purposes of the scriptures is to train us in righteousness, the exact thing we are praying for when we pray, thy will be done. If you want to know God's will for your life, pray and open your Bible. If you're constantly agonizing over what God's will for your life is and your Bible remains closed, you are shooting yourself in the foot. He has told you, take up and read. Now, as soon as we realize that we are praying for our wills to be in obedience to God and then start searching the scriptures for instruction in such a task, we realize that not all duties commanded by God are the same. Zacharias Ursinus, whose name I'm sure I have butchered, the author of the Heidelberg Catechism, wrote a commentary on that same catechism, and he notes that in scripture we can find common duties— those things that all people ought to do, and special duties, things that certain people need to do depending on their vocation or their calling. The common duties of man are those that we must all strive to do. We are all called to be sexually pure and kill lust. We are all called to be honest and truthful in both word and deed. We are all called to worship God, submit to our parents, basically anything you can extrapolate from the Ten Commandments. These are the common duties of man. However, there are special duties for those with certain vocations. For example, James chapter 3, verse 1 warns that not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Of course, we should all be careful when discussing God's word. We want to be accurate in what we say about God and his gospel. But those who are teachers have a more strict duty to be even more careful than the rest of us. Their responsibility brings on a special duty. They are held to a higher standard, and they will take account one day for everything they have said concerning God's word. Another example could be something like the vocations of marriage and parenting. The Bible has a lot to say about marriage and family. But not every man is a husband. Not every woman is necessarily a mother. But for those who God has called to those vocations, 
He has given special commands and precepts for carrying them out. These are just a couple examples of special duties. And of course, God also calls all of us to many different specific careers and jobs. God has not called me to be a faithful engineer. I know this because he did not also equip me with the math skills necessary to attempt such a vocation. But he has called me to be a faithful teacher, and in my life that will look a certain way based on my context. He has called Eric Wilkins to be a faithful engineer, though, and that will look a certain way as it plays out in his life and in his setting. So we can see Christian obedience may not look exactly the same in every single situation for every Christian and their different vocations and callings. But this is not relativism in any way. Every Christian is called to be a Christian in their many vocations. There's no part of our lives where we get to leave our Christianity at the door. Christians are not allowed to say something like, business is business, as if we get to carve out different standards for ourselves in different circumstances. If you are called to teach, you are called to do it as a Christian. If you are called to work in retail, you are called to do it as a Christian. If you are called to any job ever, you are called to do whatever that job is as a Christian. And while the specific ways that plays out in the plethora of jobs and callings that are out there, they're very diverse, God's will is for us all to act righteously in them. So, hopefully, we have settled at least a little bit about what we mean when we say, Thy will be done. But then there's that second part, on earth as it is in heaven. This tells us how we ought to do His will. And how do we think God's will is done in heaven? Perfectly. The Bible doesn't give us as much information about heaven as some of us would like. But God does give us enough in his word to understand what is meant here. Psalm 103 verse 20 says, Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. The angels who live in heaven obey God's word. And there are no caveats. There are no carve-outs. It doesn't say that they obey or do his word most of the time. Or occasionally, it just says they obey. And this is what God desires from us. And in order for God's word to truly be obeyed perfectly, it must be done ultimately for his glory. Isaiah chapter 6 shows us that one of the main tasks of the angels in heaven is glorifying the Lord. In that chapter, verses 2 and 3 state, Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The angels in heaven glorify God, and our obedience to his will should be the same. While yes, it is good to do God's will even when you don't feel like it, to truly do God's will, as it is done in heaven, it needs to be done for the sake of God's glory and done with joy. God wants us to love doing the right thing, not just do the right thing. 
the angels in heaven are never depicted as sad or sour as they obey. They are joyfully obedient. Now, I know what you're thinking, Addison. That was a lot. And how on earth am I supposed to keep up with all that? It seems kind of impossible to do. And I'll be honest with you. It is impossible for you to do. If you walk out here tonight determined to have God's will be done through your own discipline and white-knuckled efforts, you will fail every time. You will have just created a new law to yoke yourself under, and it can easily just become another thing that stands to damn and condemn you. But we have to remember that this is a petition. We are asking God to do this in us. It is not intended to be from our own power that these things happen in our lives. It is not in our own power that we obey God. It is not in our own power that we love His law. But through Christ, we can. Christ has done everything on our behalf. He's done all the obeying. That was part of his mission. In the garden, Jesus prayed, Not my will, but yours be done. And he did it. And because he did it and has sent the Holy Spirit to guide us, we can do it bit by bit too. But our following of God's will is not anchored in our own efforts or power. It is anchored in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And yes, we will fail a lot daily. But Jesus isn't surprised by that. That's why a little bit later in this very same Lord's Prayer, we learn to pray for forgiveness. It's built in. And it's frustrating sometimes. It can be hard to pray that we would do God's will with perfect obedience, which is what we're praying, knowing that this isn't really possible for us it can be discouraging to pray this prayer while continually struggling with that same sin you've been trying to put to death for years. Your heart and your soul are covered in spiritual combat wounds, and you wonder why victory hasn't been granted yet. That's hard. The Christian life doing God's will is hard. But I also think there's a little bit of hope in this second section on earth as it is in heaven. The same section that shows we should be seeking perfect, joyful obedience to God, a difficult task to be sure, holds a seed of hope. Because the truth is that one day we will obey God with perfect obedience. And things on earth will be like things in heaven. A glorious day is coming in which our fight with sin is over and everything on earth will be as in heaven. Just like with God's decorative will, we are praying for something that is ultimately, in the end, when Christ comes back and restores all things, it is certain. We, can, we can't know how much victory we will experience in this life. But we are guaranteed absolute victory in the next. And I think that's comforting. So, in closing, um, Revelation is one of my favorite books. Uh, it is not because I understand all of it or that I have figured it out. Um, I thought I had for a while, but God's been humbling me on that front. But if I could be so bold as to claim to understand one part of it, it's chapter 21. So if you would, 
in your copy of God's Word, just go ahead and flip to chapter 21 of the Revelation of John. This chapter comes on the heels of the final defeat of Satan, the one who so often interferes with our well-meaning plans to do God's will. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Ultimately, when we pray this petition in the Lord's Prayer, we are praying it with an anchored hope in Jesus Christ, a hope that promises he is making all things new. And that one day things really will be on earth as in heaven. So as you go throughout this week, and as you pray the Lord's Prayer, search the scriptures for God's will. That is where it is to be found, because that is where he has revealed it. And when the hard times come, and you fail to keep God's law as we all do, hold on to the hope that we have in Christ. He has already obeyed on your behalf. And has guaranteed for you a perfect future. So put your hope in that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you once again to be here to study um, your word with your saints in your church. Father, I pray that it has been edifying to all who have heard. Father, I pray that as we go through our lives, we would continue to pray for your will to be done in our lives. That we would accept what you have decreed as if it comes from a loving Father, because that is the truth. And Father, we pray that you, through your Holy Spirit, would sanctify us so that we can do your will and love to do your will. And Father, for when we fail, please keep our eyes on Jesus Christ, the finisher of our faith. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.